I am Sharon Pearson, president of Salem City Club. Thank you for joining us today. Our program committee plans to present two programs each month through May, filling out our fifth and February 5th. Our program will be in partnership with Salem Reads. The speaker will be BJ Anderson, executive director of the Willamette Humane Society. The next two programs, will allow our community to meet new leaders in the Oregon Legislature and the Salem Police Department. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. City Club would not be able to present programs without the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. KMUZ Radio, Lou Jean Fobert Grassroots Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. Thank you to our supporting business sponsors, our business sponsors, and all of our members for their support of our club and our mission to keep the community informed. I'm delighted to also thank today's program sponsor, the North Santiam Watershed Council. Rebecca McCoon, Executive Director of the North Santiam Water Council, is here to tell you a little about, bit about the council's work. Rebecca? Greetings. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. Yes. Thank you so much for giving us this opportunity and for providing this um, important program today. Just really quick, I wanted to mention the North Santiam Watershed Council is made up of a seven-member volunteer board that it has a uh, made up of diverse stakeholders throughout the watershed, both geographically and in terms of their interests. And our mission at the Watershed Council is providing opportunities for stakeholders to cooperate in promoting and sustaining the health of the watershed and its communities. The North Sandia Watershed Council has several programs it offers for landowners and for the, the regional stakeholders. We have a landowner restoration program that involves writing grants and helping landowners do um, great work uh, restoring their landscapes. We also have collaborative planning and partnership building efforts with the partners of the North CNTM and a drought planning effort. We also engage with the community in terms of education, in terms of the natural resources of the watershed. Again, programs are tailored toward protection and restoration of our watershed's natural resources. As many of you know, the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head wildfires hit the watershed, as you can see outlined there in black. This last September, it burned 222,909 acres of approximately 500,000 acres of the North Santiam watershed. So this has changed things for us. Um, luckily with the City of Salem grant that we had, we were able to purchase straw for landowners and give it to them for free. And we had amazing volunteers get it out to folks. Um, we were able to reach 107 landowners um, with straw. We were able to so far get 55 landowners throughout the watershed free plant material. And overall, we are assisting 150 landowners with post-fire restoration efforts. In we are also in regular communication with partners regarding erosion issues, hazardous trees, debris flow, and water quality concerns. 
And just quick, here's a slide of what took place this last fall. Again, we had amazing volunteers help get straw bales out to impacted landowners. Um, and again, to help protect the city of Salem's water source. So thank you again. Thank you very much, uh, Rebecca. I, I think that's wonderful, wonderful work. So um, this is a, a good compliment for our program today. And speaking of our program today, uh, here is Hans West, who is the program lead for today's program. And he will introduce our speakers and um, do the question and answer period after the program. Good morning, Hans. Hey, hi there, hi there. Hey, welcome everybody. Um, this is almost a follow-up on the water program we had a year and a half ago, but there's a lot more happened, a lot more. We're all aware of what extreme well fires are doing to our homes, forests, and the air quality. Uh, what's less clear is how the wildfires pollute and alter the water coming out of the watersheds. So today uh, we're going to hear what scientists and engineers have learned about this problem, both locally and in other states and what Salem is doing to protect the water we drink. Jude Grounds will give us a broad overview of the wildfire issues, issue as it applies to the Pacific Northwest and California, along with a review uh, focused on the Willamette Valley and Santiam watersheds. Lacey Gores Priest will um, describe or will update us about the current status of Salem's water supplies and our new ozone water purification facility. In light of the wildfire, the latter is very important, is a very important upgrade to our system. Uh, we will also have city councilor Hoy. <clears throat> he will uh, give us a more specific description of our watershed and of the water relationships we have with our Santiam Canyon uh, neighbors. Uh, these three speakers will uh, go uh, in strict order. Well, strict order. We'll start with Chris Hoy and subsequent, subsequently Lacey Gores, and, no, Jude Grounds, and then Lacey Gores. So let me briefly give a little description, uh, uh, a little CV of all three. Uh, Chris Hoy is a city councilor from Ward 6 and currently serves as president of the city council and as chair of the Salem Housing Authority. He recently retired after a 30-year history with law enforcement in Clackamas County, where he rose to the position of uh, undersheriff. Throughout his career, Chris worked to help incarcerated individuals in the criminal system have better outcomes and reduced recidivism. Uh, I'm sure he then, as city councilor, had a crash course in water issues. Um, Jude Grounds is vice president of Carollo Engineering. Jude, can you show yourself? Um, and he has a 20 year uh, experience in water treatment plan design, construction and process optimization. He's head of the company's Pacific Northwest Water Practice and has worked with the city of Salem and supported the development of our near and long-term responses to cyanotoxins. He has also worked with us more recently. He has managed some of the largest water supply planning and design projects in the Northwest. Um, Lacey Gores Priest, is a water quality supervisor. Lacey, there you are, thank you. Is a water quality supervisor for, for the city of Salem. She oversees drinking water regulatory programs such as watershed monitoring, cross-connection and regulatory compliance sampling and operation of the aquifer storage and recovery well system. Sounds like a lot of water there. 
Um, so I think I'm through with that part. So we will have our first speaker, uh, Chris Hoy, please uh, take it from here. Thank you, Hans. And good afternoon, everybody. If you're like me, uh, prior to 2018, you probably didn't give a lot of thought to your water. You turned on the faucet and out came delicious, fresh water in abundant supply. And then suddenly things changed. Cyanotoxins from an algal bloom on Detroit Lake penetrated our water system for the first time. Our wonderful water was no longer safe to drink. Suddenly everybody was learning about water, including the city council. Since that time, a lot has happened. Today, we're going out, we're going to outline our water system and the progress the city has made in the two and a half years since that first event, how the city has responded to the event and how and the steps it's taken to prepare our water system for the ever-changing future. And with that, we'll get right to it. On our agenda today, you'll have an overview of the watershed and the treatment system. Uh, Jude will provide some case studies, uh, including uh, fires and watersheds and, and how that can impact and, and how the city actually uh, monitors our watershed and does modeling to keep our system safe. And then we'll have some time at the end for some questions and answers. So I think it's really important to understand what makes up the city's water system. And, and it's first, it, start, it all starts in the watershed. And, and we're so grateful for our partners at the North Sandyam Watershed Council who are the sponsors of today's event because the work that they do makes our water uh, what it is. And so our, our system starts, up, actually our, our watershed starts up at the peak of Mount Jefferson. I don't know if a lot of people are aware of that, but up on the, the peaks of Mount Jefferson, uh, is where the water originates before it heads down uh, to Detroit Lake. And our watershed covers more than 760 square miles of land reaching from the peak, like I said, of Mount Jefferson and Three Finger Jack, all the way down to just above uh, the city of Staten where Garen Island is, where our, treatment, our water treatment system takes place. And for, for generations, the North Saniam has been a safe and reliable source of drinking water for the city of Salem and other regional water providers. Um, and approximately 80% of the land in the watershed is owned and managed by the US Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management and the State of Oregon Department of Forestry. So that makes uh, relationships and uh, makes them really important in managing our watershed because you can see all the, the different government entities involved. In addition, uh, we have our partners include Marion County, Lynn County, because they both uh, are, are in our watershed, the cities of Idana, Detroit, Gates, Mills, Mill City, Lyons, Staten, and like I said, certainly the North San Diego Watershed Council. We all work together in order to manage that watershed. In addition, uh, in addition, I'm sorry, in addition to the folks I mentioned above, the, uh, the US Forest Service, the BLM, and the state of Oregon, they, we all work together uh, to make it happen. And the city's water supply begins once the water enters Garen Island here, you'll, as you see there, right in the center of that map. And these are uh, some overhead actual pictures of Garen Island. And those are uh, the slow sand filters and, that you see, right, that Jude is outlining for us. So that's actually the first kind of big step in filtering our water. And I'm gonna talk more about that in just a minute. But if we could go back to the map for just one second, Jude. Um, after leaving uh, Garen Island, it heads in a pipe. A pipe some, some of those, these pipes, keep in mind, have been there since uh, the 30s. 
So they're 90, some of our pipes are 90 years old. They leave uh, Garen Island and they head to Franzen Reservoir, which is up on a hill up above Turner. And right before it gets to Franzen Reservoir, you see there's a little pipe that heads off to the city of Turner. So they actually get their water through our water supply. They're one of our big uh, commercial uh, customers. They get their, they get their water uh, before it actually heads to our reservoir. And from, from there, the water heads into Franzen Reservoir and then on into the city of Salem. And before it gets quite to the city, it, it, we send some of it off to the East Salem Suburban Water, water District, where they provide water to the unincorporated areas of East Salem, uh, areas that are uh, not incorporated, but yet uh, are right near, right near the city. They, they, we supply all of their water as well. And then also the water over in West Salem, a small portion up in the hills uh, at Orchard Heights. There's a little water system up there where that we also supply the water to. So you can see that our water system is pretty complex. Um, it's a lot more than just uh, water running down the river. Um, let's see, sorry, my computer decided to try to do an update in the middle of a, in the middle of this, that is not helpful. There we go, I'm back, all right. So if we could head on to the, there we go. This, uh, the, the water system that we have, it's a, it's a slow sand filtration system. And it's, it's been described like the slide says as an elegant treatment strategy. And it's one of the oldest and uh, water treatment technologies that exists. And the one that we have at, at Garen Island, the system that we have is the largest slow sand filtration system in the United States, believe it or not. Those, uh, if you've ever uh, done home aquariums, I always think of it this way because I think of things and things I can relate to. If you ever had an aquarium with an underground filtration filtration system and the, the gravel sort of acted as the, the filter for your, uh, for your water, that's what we have at uh, Garen Island. This, these are, there's sand in these, in these filters that actually serve as the filters. And like I said, it's, located at Garen Island, it's been in existence since the 30s. And the thing about these slow sand systems is they really rely on a consistent water supply. And we've had a really wonderful consistent water supply since the 30s, up until recently when things started really changing. And uh, so that's what we're gonna talk about here in a minute. But our water, just so you're aware, our water system supplies water to about 200,000 people every day, which is uh, you know, a lot of folks depend on this system. So here's, here's actually how it works. So this is sort of a, an overview of our system at Garen Island. And you see the intake is up there right out of the North Sandy M, right on the north end there. And then it heads right to those uh, big, to the roughing filters, which can, can act to uh, kind of as a pretreatment. And I should probably read off my notes and not make this up because I'm a city councilor and not a water scientist. So <laughs> under normal operating conditions, the water, the river water is introduced slowly into the slow sand filters, which rely on natural biological treatment to remove contaminants from the water. And, uh, the, and then the filtered water is then disinfected and introduced into the city system. The treatment plant has an additional treatment tools, including roughing filters to help manage challenging water conditions, such as muddy waters, which sometimes you might hear today described as turbidity. So if we get muddy waters, then they have to go through the, the roughing filters. But otherwise, that you, you notice the pipes will are actually built so they can bypass that. Now, when we had our, our problem in 2018, we, we had to modify the system because what we had in place wasn't adequate 
to filter out the cyanotoxins that were developed from the algae. And so you see up here at the beginning, all the things in yellow are the things that we did in 2018 to address that, right? And we had to, we had to act fast, right? Because it was a, people weren't able to drink the water and, and that's not okay when you have 200,000 people relying on this system. So right off the bat, the city worked with our experts like Jude, who you're gonna hear from in a bit, to, and the, the experts at the city work to uh, introduce powder activated carbon, which basically it, 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 it acts to remove the uh, organic material with, um, so it take, and it, it removes the cyanotoxins from, from the water. And then the water proceeds through the system just like it would have. And then we added also acetic acid, which, uh, supplies nutrients to the slow sand filters because the powder activated carbon actually took out some of the good things that the system, that the slow sand filters need to operate. So then once, they're through, once the water made it through there, uh, then we had to decrease the chlorine that we actually had to, we had to increase the, the chlorine uh, in the, uh, as it was coming out of the, the filters. And so then we had to work to decrease it. And so we did that and then it headed on up to the Franzen Reservoir. So that's sort of what we did in the really short term, really quick fix uh, to make the water safe. So you notice when you, we were able to drink the water again pretty quickly, it's because that system was in place and it was working. And you'll see here throughout 2019 through Lacey's uh, great work of monitoring, you can see that in the green line there are the cyanotoxins that were in the, that were in the water coming into, the, into our water system. And you can see they were above the vulnerable criteria and also the adult criteria. So those are really bad, uh, that's bad. But, but our system, if you look in the, the light blue line down at the bottom, you'll see that's what actually was in our treated water. So once our, once our all those filters I just told you about went to work and the powder, powder activated charcoal or, and carbon, that's what was left, which is almost no toxins, which is well below all the all of the uh, critical lines. So that system here, we have really good evidence from our different monitoring sites that that system really was effective and uh, made the water safe again pretty quickly. But that being said, we knew that that wasn't going to be a sustainable solution. It was kind of expensive, but at that point, you know, cost really wasn't an issue because we needed uh, good drinking water. So. What did we do? Uh, through a lot of planning, again, with our experts and with the help of the Oregon legislature, uh, they, we came up with a solution that introduced a new treatment so it would, it would replace the powder activated uh, carbon and all of the other things. Um, and this treatment will help us not only with, uh, with the algal blooms and cyanotoxins, but it'll help us with things like, uh, that are introduced to our water through, the, uh, like through wildfires. And so that's what was really important. And this, uh, I'm sorry, if we could back up for one second. The schedule shows the implementation of this long-term solution, which is ozonation. It's a powerful oxidant capable of destroying cyanotoxins as well as many other potential contaminants. Um, and so you'll see the, the key here is that a lot of work has been going on since 2018 and in quarter two of this year, which means between April and June, that new system is gonna be in place just in time for the next uh, algae season. So we're gonna have a, even a more robust solution in place. And if we can go to the next one, Jude, there actually, this is a, this is a, a architect's rendering of what this is going to look like. So this building is currently under construction out at Garen Island. It, can, uh, it includes an ozone generation room, which is pictured right here. 
and then an also an ozone con contactor, um, which is where the powerful accident will be exposed to the water, allowing it to completely destroy the toxins. So, uh, yeah, and you can see that here on this end. And here's an actual picture of, of the ozone facility that's currently under construction. So that's right out there at Garen, Garen Island. And it's currently on budget, on schedule, and ready for startup here in the next few months. So here's what the system will look like once that's in place. Um, it'll incorporate the ozone treatment into the overall treatment process train. In addition, we're also adding a new groundwater source. So we're drilling some wells to be able to use groundwater out up from Garen Island. So if things just, uh, if we really need some additional water for whatever reason, we can't filter out all the stuff we need to filter out coming out of the river, we can actually just go straight to groundwater at Garen Island. And you'll see there uh, where Jude is highlighting that uh, we'll be able to just start our water system right there from groundwater. So we'll be able to completely bypass the river at that point. We close the, close the intakes and we'll just go straight to groundwater, which is uh, it's a nice duplication. Right now, we don't have a lot of replication like that. And so this is going to give us another uh, great option if, if we have trouble. And so all of these things together uh, really are going to ensure that we have a safe drinking water for generations to come, despite uncertainties like uh, climate change and wildfires, and all the things that are happening in our watershed. This system that the city staff and our, and our partners have developed is really gonna position us to have safe water. So hopefully we'll never have one of those uh, do not drink orders come out again. And uh, with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Jude Grounds from Corolla Engineers, and he is going to talk to you about some more specifics. Thank you, Councillor Hoyt. Uh, again, my name is Jude Grounds. Uh, I met with you all a year and a half ago when we were talking about um, cyanotoxins, but they've asked me to come back today and talk about um, what we might expect to see or what some of the implications might be from the wildfires in the, in the watershed. And so what I've done is pulled together some case studies of other municipal systems that have lived through and survived uh, wildfires in their watershed. So I have three case studies to present, and then I'll turn it over to, to Lacey to talk really about what, what the city of Salem themselves are doing. First case study is Santa Barbara, the Cater Water Treatment Plant. Um, very similar picture to what, what was shown a little bit earlier. Here in black is the, uh, the watershed uh, for the city of Santa Barbara. And in red is the Zaka fire burn. So very analogous to what the city of Salem saw, a lot of overlap. And in, in this case, you know, about 40% of their, of their watershed was burned. Now, the Cater Water Treatment Plant is, is located near just outside the city of Santa Barbara, but they have two intakes and that's important. Um, Councillor Hoy talked about an alternative uh, raw water supply and groundwater for the city of Salem and that resilience. And what you'll see in this case study is that they had two intakes, Gibraltar, which was really devastated. Uh, you know, many of the tributaries um, to the raw water there were in the fire area as opposed to the Kachuma who actually had the uh, a reservoir there to allow some settling, but also a lot of tributaries that were not impacted by the wildfire. So the strategy for this particular um, municipality was to switch to take all of their water from the Chikuma reservoir. Now this is a graph that shows monthly pers precipitation here in the, uh, on the y-axis and dates here on the, on the 
x-axis. And you'll see this wildfire happened in July of 2007. Now, another motif that you'll see through these case studies is that wildfires plus devastating rainfall <laughs> immediately after can really combine to create a, a perfect storm for water quality challenges uh, at treatment plants. This graph shows um, uh, disinfection byproducts and disinfection byproducts are really the product of organic carbon in the natural water that's reacting with the chlorine residual that we're um, by law required to maintain throughout our system. So the organic carbon plus the chlorine creates disinfection byproducts and Lacey and her team work really hard for the city of Salem to keep those numbers low. However, after a wildfire, that um, total organic carbon from the ash and whatnot can introduce a lot more um, carbon to react with that chlorine. And what you see here in yellow boxes are the quarterly average of, in this case, trihalomethanes, THMs, which is one family of disinfection byproducts. So you can see normally they were running between 50 and mid 60s, but right after that rain event, ooh, all the way up to 94, well above what they really felt comfortable uh, introducing into their system. And in fact, above the regulated limit of a running annual average of 80 micrograms per liter. So that 94 really made them think, hey, we've got to start doing something. And they did something very similar to what the city of Salem did. They implemented powdered activated carbon on their, uh, on their supply. Second case study is the Duchesne Valley Water Treatment Plant for the Central Utah Valley Water Conservancy District. This is just an overview of, of the district itself, uh, located in Utah, just south of the Great Salt Lake. Uh, you can see here the Dollar Ridge fire kind of burned uh, all around there, the, the Strawberry River, which serves as a source water for Starvation Reservoir and downstream um, at the uh, Duchesne Valley Water Treatment Plant. The intake for Duchesne Valley Water Treatment Plant is at Starvation Reservoir. 2018 Dollar Fire. This is just a picture taken of a upstream reservoir, the Soldier Creek Dam, but you can kind of see down that valley, they just had devastating fires. Uh, throughout that, they burned 30,000 acres in the first two days. And in fact, on August 22nd, uh, very similar to Santa Barbara, here came a huge um, thunderstorm cells that went right over the top of the Dollar Ridge fire burned area there and created massive turbidity or mud in the, in the river and incredible uh, washout. Now, what really saved uh, the Duchesne Valley Water Treatment Plant, it's, it's very interesting. The water coming into the plant, um, this is the inlet to the reservoir here. So you can see this turbid water really coming into the reservoir and just how this is a, a view uh, above ground of that, of that river, the Strawberry River coming into the reservoir. Look how muddy it is, but you can see that mud kind of disappears. You don't see it going through here. And, and actually what happened is the water being a little bit colder followed the kind of natural river uh, bed uh, through here and, and actually came out just the bottom of the, the reservoir. The top of the, of the reservoir was not um, impacted. And so the plant intake, which has multiple levels that they can intake, um, they were just pulling water right off the top. And in fact, over time, they saw that turbidity coming up and it was getting close to their intake, but then ultimately it kind of washed out. So it was this reservoir configuration that protected um, the, the treatment plant from that big slug of challenging water quality to treat. And again, 
though the turbidity had passed, there were long-term impacts to total organic carbon that, that they saw. This, this is a plot that shows total organic carbon in milligrams per liter, both before and after the fire uh, in the raw, uh, which is just the river water in blue and the finished water post-treatment in orange. And you can see the blue and the orange kind of trend and track with one another. Well, after the fires and then the flood, which introduced all that carbon, you see the again, the raw water just spike almost twice what the background levels were. And again, higher concentrations in the, in the treated water. The, the uh, plant operators had a couple tools in their tool belt um, for this particular event. They have ozone already, but they had to increase their dose by almost seven times, as well as increasing their chlorine dose by almost a factor of two. Finally, I just wanna talk a little bit about um, Colorado area. There's been a lot of research um, into uh, wildfires in Colorado and their impacts on water. And, and in fact, um, a series of, of wildfires um, in, uh, created some landslide events during some monsoons, some other fires elevated sediments and, and metals, including manganese um, in, the, in the water and the Hayman fire. Um, after, even 10 years later, still maintains elevated levels of nitrate, uh, which is a, a nutrient that can feed things like, like um, cyanobacteria and algae. Um, what we find in general is that there's three common water quality responses, sediment or that turbidity we talked about, nutrients, phosphorus and, and nitrate, and then the metals. We also see kind of an increase in, in uh, base and peak flows. So uh, in Colorado, for example, um, when that uh, when their forests were burned, it, their growing season is, is much um, shorter and it's much more difficult to grow there. So the water um, really didn't have that kind of lush uh, and understory to, to attenuate those rain events. Instead, it all just washed right down the river. And so they see these big, big peaks and base flows. Um, what we did learn over time was that typically no single fire had more than one water quality challenge at a time. So with one fire, we'll see turbidity, and then over time, we'll see more um, TOC and or nutrients. So those things don't usually happen all at the same time. These show some plots of total organic carbon and turbidity. This is over time. The point here is that if we are able to study these things, we can understand the long-term effects of these things and understand how, at, you know, post-fire, what are the trends in organic carbon? What are the trends in turbidity? And to that end, uh, there've been a lot of innovations in terms of um, improving our remote monitoring of these things. Uh, this is just one example from Colorado Springs where they put in remote monitors powered by solar radio transmissions back into town so that uh, we can get that data kind of real time. It's kind of a canary in the coal mine so that Lacey and her treatment team can say, hey, if that's gonna happen way up in the watershed, we need to start preparing ourselves and changing our treatment strategy to accommodate these challenges moving forward. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Lacey Gores Priest, uh, City of Salem water quality supervisor and good friend uh, to talk a little bit more about Salem's response. Thank you, Jude. I appreciate the uh, wealth of knowledge that you've provided over some case studies of how wildfires have impacted water quality. Um, I also appreciate the information that Councillor Hoy provided to the group today to talk about all of the improvements that the city has made at the Garrett Island Water Treatment Facility and that we continue to make to ensure that our system remains robust and resilient as we move forward for future generations. 
Today, I'm going to focus a little bit more locally on Salem's water source and what we've been doing um, since really the 2018 cyanotoxin issue, as well as uh, the wildfires that we experienced last year. Uh, in general, there's some impacts to Salem source water, and those can really be categorized into two different columns, and that's water quantity and water quality. Uh, being that uh, the North Saniam River is a surface water source, uh, that source can be impacted by rainfall, snowpack, drought conditions, and ultimately is also impacted by the operation of the two Army Corps of Engineer dams, both Detroit and Big Cliff Dam. Additionally, water quality can impact our drinking water source, and we've seen that through uh, the uh, ongoing harmful algal blooms that we see at Detroit Reservoir during the spring, early summer months, um, the potential production of algal toxins that we did experience in 2018, where we had to issue a vulnerable population drinking water advisory. Uh, and then in 2020, we saw the effect of forest fire in our watershed. And one that we often uh, forget, but it does happen, is Highway 22 as a transportation corridor that does run parallel to the North Saniam River. And we do see uh, incidents where there are, you know, in this case, in the picture, a tanker truck that does uh, have an accident. And this is from February of 2020, where they do uh, lose a fuel spill and some of that does end up making its way into the North Saniam River. Um, ahead, uh, above Detroit Reservoir. So uh, that's kind of a general synopsis of the uh, potential impacts to our drinking water source. Uh, there are different ways that we track uh, changing water quality conditions in the North Saniam. Uh, we have a lot of tools in our tool belt um, and we kind of use all of those tools and to put together a, a, a comprehensive look at what's happening in the watershed so our treatment operators can then respond appropriately um, with all of the new tools and existing tools that we have at the facility to treat drinking water. Uh, we heavily rely on the U.S. Geological Survey or USGS uh, gauges that are in the watershed. Uh, they provide a variety of parameters to us, including stage, flow, uh, dissolved oxygen, turbidity, temperature, specific conductivity, uh, and other parameters that help us understand current water quality conditions. Uh, that data is available to us in real time, so we are able to pull up those stations and understand what is happening throughout the watershed at a moment's notice and use that information to operate the facility accordingly. Additionally, we have staff, uh, two full-time staff that are dedicated to our watershed monitoring program. Uh, they will be out in the watershed using an EXO2 sonde, which is similar to the gauges that are used at the USGS stations. And those we can utilize anywhere in the watershed and get uh, immediate information um, on site to uh, determine the quality of the water. Uh, so if we're at a particular arm in Detroit Reservoir, we're trying to understand um, the changing conditions there, we use that handheld instrument to be able to get field readings uh, to better understand changing conditions. In addition to that, we then will sample um, and monitor for nutrient loading. So we're looking at nitrate, uh, phosphorus conditions, 
um, to really understand what's driving or potentially driving any bloom formations. Uh, we collect samples to look for the types and amounts of algae that are present in the reservoir. And then based off of what we see from the ID and enumeration data, we then will further test for cyanotoxins uh, for microcystin and cylindrospermopsin uh, to make determinations whether or not those are being produced in the reservoir as well. So the graph that you see there is just a, a, a one parameter. So they're looking at gauge height there, and that's the gauge that's at the North Sanium um, River at Mahama. Um, over uh, last week. So uh, you can see how, um, how the river is fluctuating in height um, over that time frame. So um, any of the other parameters can be graphed like this. So again, we can see uh, it, at a moment's notice the changing conditions that are occurring at different sites. So this is a uh, map of the different sites that are available to us where the gauging stations are located. You can see that there's three sites that are located um, east of Detroit Reservoir. There's Brighton Bush, the North Sanium uh, River at Boulder Creek, and then Blowout Arm. Uh, then there's a gauge at Niagara just below Big Cliff Dam. And then as you move further down the watershed, uh, there is a station at Mahama, a station on the Little North Fork, and then a new station, the North Sanium at Stout Creek. So we use all of the gauge information from those sites to better understand changing conditions at a moment's notice uh, to help us better operate the facility at Garen Island. Uh, following the cyanotoxin event in 2018, the city purchased a log, log um, excuse me, a vertical profiler that we've installed at the log boom on Detroit Reservoir. Uh, this piece of equipment has a sond that uh, is attached underneath and it travels the water column, column at set intervals uh, to do uh, profiling of different parameters. Uh, that gives us a full look at all of the different depths of Detroit Reservoir and understand changing water conditions as the uh, profiler moves up and down through the water column. And this is important because the dam releases at different depths. And so we have a better understanding of what's coming down and being released, released through the dam system and making its way into the North Sanium River. So an example of a profile is there on your screen. You can see that depth starts at zero or at the surface of the water and moves down in 10 meter increments. And this is the concentration of blue-green algae as the uh, sensor moves down and takes readings throughout the water column. So you can see that the concentrations will vary at different depths and that gives us a better understanding of the water quality that we can expect to see downstream. Uh, other tools, uh, the city has partnered with the Prediction Lab, which uses uh, machine learning and mathematical algorithms to predict the formation of algal blooms in the watershed, as well as the formation of cyanotoxins. So essentially it takes all of the historical data that the city has collected over several years, um, plugs in recent data, and then makes a prediction on whether or not based off current data, we would expect to see a bloom form in the near future. So that is really uh, an emerging technology um, and we're very proud of that partnership with the Prediction Lab. We also have a partnership uh, with GIBE who uses optical sensors um, that they've installed on our profiler in addition to satellite imagery to 
predict all sorts of different water quality pro, uh, parameters, which we then use in partnership with all of the other tools in our toolbox when it comes to monitoring in the watershed. Uh, remote sensing or satellite imagery is also extremely helpful. So this is a picture, a satellite imagery picture of Detroit Reservoir from a 2020 flyover from the Sentinel-2. Uh, this helps us really understand the intensity of a bloom as well as the widespread uh, location of the bloom. So you can see um, in the red corner, uh, in the upper left there, this, the more intense red area means the bloom is a heavier bloom in that area. But you can also see how widespread it is through the reservoir itself. So this is another way for us to really understand bloom formation and intensity of bloom and then ground truth it with staff who go up to the reservoir and do visual assessments um, and using the SON to collect uh, our own data uh, to match what we're seeing on satellite imagery. So a little bit about the Beachy Creek fire. Uh, the Beachy Creek fire was first detected in August of uh, August 16th, 2020. It was a small fire. Uh, that was pretty inaccessible to crews to fight. Uh, and we had been kept keeping an eye on it here at the city of Salem, um, but there was a severe wind event that occurred that we're all very familiar with on the 7th of September, which then uh, had wind speeds of 50 to 75 miles per hour, uh, which caused this fire just to just blow up. Um, their fire growth uh, was growing at about 2.77 acres per second and it reached over 130,000 acres in one night. Um, there were level three evacuations throughout the San Yam Canyon, uh, extending from Mahama to Idana, and uh, eventually the Lion's Head fire did merge with the Beachy Creek fire. So very significant fire in our watershed as uh, was alluded to in previous uh, presentations. So as Jude mentioned, we did talk about potential water quality issues from fire. So these are some um, uh, local pictures from a uh, the storm that uh, we received back in December 20th of 2020. Um, the big picture on the left is the Little North Fork. You can see that it's very swollen, that the water is very turbid. There's a lot of debris um, in the water, uh, which we would expect to see from um, a storm event passing through. The picture on the upper right is a picture of a home that the water is getting dangerously close to on the, uh, on, this is on the North San Am River at the Mahama Bridge. And then uh, the bottom picture just shows how when you have burned soils and burned vegetation, um, the water uh, doesn't uh, infiltrate into the soil. Um, the water can, the soil can become hydrophobic um, and actually repel water and it just runs over the overland and collects in the drainage uh, ditch here alongside of the road and this water eventually made it into the Little North Fork. So post-fire monitoring, what have we been doing? Uh, a lot of coordination collaboration with other agencies that are stakeholders in this, um, the recovery of this area including the Forest Service, the U.S. Geological Survey, Army Corps of Engineers, North Sanium Watershed Council, Marion and Lynn Counties. Uh, we've increased the amount of sampling we're doing in the watershed um, to, uh, to really follow the storm events that come through and flush 
out of the system when large rain events come through in a short period of time. So uh, definitely uh, ramped up our sampling schedule in the watershed. We've also been partnering with the USGS on the reinstallation of some gauges. Uh, the one at the Stout Creek is a new site that's active, that's collecting all parameters. So we're having a better understanding of all of the water impacted by the Little North Fork and the North San Yam before it comes into the treatment facility at Garen Island. Uh, they installed another gauge up the Little North Fork above Evans Creek, and we are uh, working on a reactivation of a site um, a little bit further up on the Little North Fork at Pioneer Road. So uh, this is just, the red picture was just a picture of our intake during the fire season. And unfortunately, the log boom broke during the fire at Detroit, and uh, half of the log boom split to the North Shore, half went to the South Shore. Our new profiling unit took a wild ride across the lake and ultimately uh, ended up upside down with the log boom on top of it. So currently uh, looking at repairing that and getting it back online um, as, as soon as possible. And with that, I will turn it back over to Hans West for questions and answers. Um, hello there, everybody. Uh, so yes, we're going to do question and answer now. And there are two ways to do it. You can raise your hand, and I think you see the little icon at the bottom. And then, and there are two raised hands so far. And those people, when you're called upon, you will need to uh, turn on your, your speaker. Your, you need to click on the microphone, and we will do the same on this end. So it's a two-part process so we can hear you. You can also put your questions into uh, written context there. If you see the little icon at the bottom, Q and A, um, you can just type in a question there and then we'll monitor that and answer those as we can. Um, at this point, let me start with Lisa, I hope I'm saying this right, Chalides, um, to uh, give us her question. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, Lisa Chalidza, um, I organized the Canyon Rising Lollapalooza, which was a month long event to organize volunteer help for people rebuilding in the canyon. And one difficulty that the fire survivors are having is the cost of building septic systems. Um, that's a really large chunk of change for almost everybody, it's not a wealthy community and insurance does not typically cover the cost of compliance with municipal or other governmental regulations. They are a significant stakeholder. They don't drink from the, the Saniam River like you do, but it's, they live there. Um, I was born and raised there and my sixth generation family home was destroyed at Niagara which was destroyed completely. So this is by way of just trying to understand whether there's any point of input into your intellectual and strategic and planning processes to perhaps be of assistance to those people who are trying to rebuild. We're not looking to pollute the river. We're not looking to get a get out of jail free card on septic compliance, but it would really help if there were a little flexibility and maybe looking at some other types of systems or maybe even financial support, because I'm, I'm really fearful that 
this is such a big obstacle. This and internet are really the two big ticket items that are preventing a lot of people from being able to rebuild. So I just wondered if there was any, any place in your thinking about that. Well, I can just speak generally. I know that we have had conversations with the county commissioners. We have ongoing conversations with them. This is really their uh, kind of bailiwick. And I know that they are working with the legislature and we're certainly happy to work with them on these conversations. It's not something that um, really is within our purview as I understand it in terms of regulation, but it, it really is something that the commissioners are doing and we're happy to uh, continue that conversation. I, I feel really, I mean, I, we understand the impact of the fires on people like you and your family and I, it, my heart goes out to you and we wanna do whatever we can to help you rebuild uh, in a way that, that, that makes sense and that works. So, you know, that's something that we're certainly paying attention to and doing, playing our part, although I just don't think that we have a big part in that particular situation. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, are, is everybody through there? Good, I think you are. Kevin, uh, let's take you next. You've raised your hand. Yeah, just can you hear me? We can. Yeah, it's Kevin Cameron, Marion County Commissioner. And Chris, I appreciate the uh, handoff. I, I wrote some notes on the, the previous uh, uh, question because I had a question about, I didn't hear anything about septic tanks in the uh, presentation. So uh, I'm glad uh, that she brought it up. Just to let her know a couple of things, and it, this needs to be communicated. If anybody in the canyon uh, had damage and they signed up for FEMA, even though septic tanks aren't um, covered by your insurance, FEMA will uh, help with the cost of repair or replacement of septic tanks. They had to have signed up and be qualified through FEMA, but then go back to their FEMA representative. If they need some help, contact our office. We'll, we'll uh, certainly uh, get them with our liaison with FEMA. Uh, the second thing I wanted to point out is uh, I served on the Governor's Wildfire Recovery Council um, and there in the final report, there's a $10 million recommendation. It's not, it's not in the governor's budget, but there's a $10 million recommendation from that council uh, that would be towards septic and uh, further development of the sewer system. And so we're hoping we can get that money, which would be able to be utilized for grants for people who either didn't qualify for FEMA their septics have been destroyed and they can uh, apply for grants through that. But we got to get that money out of the state to be able to seed uh, that fund to help those people with those septic tanks that have been destroyed or need repair. Um, and then the last thing, I think she said internet, uh, even through this fire, I want you to know that, uh, that uh, Zipply Fiber uh, was given a grant before the fire hit to have internet broadband service through a throughout Idana and Detroit, and they had to get it done by the end of the year, they got it done. So there is broadband internet service now in Idana and Detroit. So the other locations, they didn't have it before. The other locations, some of them had it and the repairs are I'm sure underway. Uh, there's a lot going on uh, from the county. Chris, I appreciate any questions that people may have, they can, they can direct them that way, our way. Thank you. 
thanks for the great presentation for, for bringing that information forward. I thought that was the case with FEMA and the septic, but I didn't want to say it out loud because I wasn't positive. So I really appreciate you being here and adding that. Yeah, please, please, if people are on here and they have questions about those types of recovery things, there's a whole bunch of people working on it. Uh, and we're, we're putting together a, a wildfire, wildfire recovery specialist for long term that's going to help bring all those resources together, too. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Um, next, uh, we'll take Russ Beaton. Russ, are, are you ready? There we go. Please ask your question. Have you turned on your microphone? I have. There, there. Okay, all Russ. Right. Uh, thanks to all of you for a very interesting and comprehensive presentation today. Um, I know that we all know that the uh, cyanotoxin invented two and a half years ago or so now, and the wildfires are totally separate. But it sounds to me like uh, the planning that the, uh, the event uh, instituted has kind of helped us out in terms of handling the wildfire event too. Uh, I, I sort of sense that through your presentations, but do any of you want to say anything more about that? Sure, thank you for, for the question and comment, Russ. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, as Ben's mentioned through the presentation, slow sound filtration is very effective, but um, the more tools we have in our tool belt uh, at Garen Island just makes for a, a much more robust, resilient system. And so, uh, you know, staff in consultation with uh, Corolla spent a lot of time really um, working through the different options that we had to incorporate additional tools within the existing treatment train at Garen Island. And ozone was selected and uh, will help us not only with the cyanotoxin issue, but other issues as they arise uh, as we move forward. And so um, it was a, a very uh, thoughtful um, and uh, determined choice by the city uh, staff to move in this direction. And we're finding out that um, the, the benefits will far exceed just the cyanotoxin um, issue that we had in 2018. Thank you, Lacey, for that. If I could just add to her answer also. So I mentioned earlier that we, we got some financial assistance from the legislature for those upgrades and they were that money was critical in allowing those to go forward. But the other thing that allowed that to go, that allowed that to happen, was you know directly from the rates that that customers pay every month for their water. There's a portion of that that we set aside to do exactly what the work that Lacey just described. And because the staff has been really good about planning and saving and setting some money aside for events like this, we were able to do the powder activated uh, carbon and this new system pretty quickly without impacting the general fund of the city, but through the, the, the utility fund, which is directly from the ratepayers. And I know that people hate it when we raise your water and sewer rates uh, every year and we hate doing it, but we have, we've been on the track for several years now and the very slow incremental increases to those rates to do exactly what, what Lacey just described. And I, I threw something in earlier and I don't know if you picked up on it, but our water, a lot of our pipes are 90 years old. Well, those need to be replaced. 
okay? At, at some point, they're going to need to be replaced. And that money is, it comes from the utility, which means it comes from the, the rate payers. And so that's what we're planning for for the future is to, to continually modernize our system. This was one big modernization, I would call it, and replication. Uh, but we also are gonna have some other work to be done with those pipes in the, in the future, because we, we have to get all the way from Staten to Turner and then Turner to Salem. Uh, and those pipes are really old. Okay, thank you. Uh, then we have sort of a, yeah, a question here about groundwater usage. Um, and I, I don't know if um, the, pay, the answer um, was correction. The question from Victor Dodier refers to Salem using groundwater and how that might affect uh, water users up in the canyon. Uh, is that an issue or could it be an issue? In other words, we're taking their groundwater or some of it, it might lower theirs. So um, I'll go ahead and start with that. And I don't know if Councillor Hoyer or Jude wanna jump in, but um, essentially all we're doing is just making a more resilient system by having that um, groundwater uh, availability to us in, the, in a time that we would need it. So should there be a large um, turbidity event, uh, we would be able to then pull groundwater supply through that turbidity event um, to continue to produce water until that event subsided. Um, or if we knew that there was a large cyanotoxin issue in Detroit Reservoir, we could switch to groundwater and utilize that source until we knew that that event again had subsided. So it just allows us more operational flexibility um, to be able to uh, use it during a time of need. Um, you know, a good percentage of the time, North San Am River water is, is a high quality water that we're able to use with our slow sand filtration source. Um, but in those times that we do need that operational flexibility, additional groundwater will help just reinforce water availability to us for production purposes. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I'd like to throw in a question. Uh, metals were, were mentioned and uh, also volatile organic compounds. I mean, I, as I did some reading, seems to me that's been part of wildfires and, and water uh, pollution, I'll, I'll say. Now, I didn't hear VOC mentioned specifically or, or the metals, how we clear that out or how we take care of it. I get that's my question. Sure, so um, again, I'll, I'll try to take that question and Jude, if you follow up with anything that I might miss. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, analyzing for metals, um, especially when you have, um, you know, part, parts of towns and homes and, and uh, buildings that were affected by the wildfire is an important part of the monitoring strategy. Um, so we do uh, sample for metals um, in the raw water, the river water. Um, that's part of our, our strategy. Uh, VOCs or volatile organic compounds um, with respect to wildfires are more often um, something that is tested for when the distribution system itself has been affected by wildfire. So uh, I believe that the town of Detroit has been testing for uh, VOCs through their distribution system as they're trying to get their system back online and, and ready um, for portable water use again. Um, while Salem was affected by the wildfires because it affected our drinking water source, it didn't impact our distribution system. Um, so it's not something that the city would um, sample for because our distribution system was not impacted by the wildfire. 
Um, so good, good question. Uh, I don't know, Jude, do you have anything you want to follow up on that with? I would just add that uh, that ozone, as was alluded to earlier, is a, provides a nice multiple barrier for many of these types of contaminants. Uh, for metals, it's a great oxidant. So it takes um, portions of the metal that are dissolved in the water and oxidizes them so that they're a particle that can be filtered out. Uh, and for VOCs and all organic carbon, it can break those complex carbons up into smaller kind of bite-sized pieces for the biology that lives on the slow sand filters to consume and, and significantly reduce that, that organic carbon um, load out of the treatment facility. Thank you. And here there's three questions that I think sort of come together. Um, someone is asking, will the cost for the, will water rates go up? And it's kind of a, three qu questions regarding cost. And has the state of Oregon helped uh, in getting the system up and going insofar as giving us money? And finally, is now a good time because of low interest rates to begin to uh, do some of this or, 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 you know, do a bond issue or whatever? So I, I, I'll take that one. And yes, the state of Oregon did help. The legislature came through, uh, I believe it was $20 million that they provided to help us uh, upgrade our system and we paid for it also the, the additional cost through the rates and the rates recently increased. We typically review those every two years in the fall. We just did that and the water rates went up in January by a very, uh, I don't remember the exact percentage, but around two to 3% if I recall correctly. And that's a typical rate increase for the city of Salem uh, water users. We try, it, 20, 30 years ago, we used to have some really volatile rates where they we would have a, a zero rate increase and then we would have a 20% rate increase. We don't do that anymore. The staff has really got us on a track where where it's a very, just a slow incremental two, one to two to 3% uh, increase at the most every year. So that's what you can anticipate over the next couple of, you know, the foreseeable future. Any other, anyone else want to speak to that? Okay, it looks like our questions are, well, there's one more. I think we have time for one more and then the slate will be clean. So Lisa, uh, do, you, do you want to talk um, uh, briefly, give us a little bit since I think we're close to uh, ending the program. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, thank you. Okay. So sort of in response to the county commissioner's comments, and thank you all for the information, by the way, um, I, I, as a voice from the wilderness, so to speak, where I'm crying there, it's actually not as sunny a picture as it might appear. FEMA, for example, boots on the ground, a lot of problems there. Uh, homeowners are getting denied a lot of paperwork and that's being very frustrating for people. As far as the long-term planning um, on the septic side, there's been a lot of talk and work around that, but really we're years out from anything viable there. And I just wanna interject a note of urgency as you go forward in your respective roles, because people have to decide now whether they're going to rebuild. It, it takes preparation. So we're really at a do or die moment and I don't wanna leave a warm and fuzzy feeling that there are agencies out there taking care of this. We're looking at losing roughly a third of our community. Uh, thank you. And uh, thanks to our speakers. I, we really appreciate you coming here and.
putting together a, a very uh, broad picture and, and detailed picture, I guess both. Um, so thanks again, and um, we appreciate it. And we look forward to hearing in the again in the future, probably at uh, some point to see what's, what's really happened and, and how, how we're looking. So let me hand it over to you, Sharon, uh, to close out. Oh, thank you so much. That was really an interesting program and boy, a lot of information to uh, absorb. Um, we hope that you will join us on February 5th. Uh, we'll have a program presented in cooperation with Salem Reads. We'll hear from BJ Anderson, the executive director of the Will Willamette Humane Society. BJ believes that the Salem Reads book, Walking with PD, the Dog That Saved My Life, and the Willamette Humane Society value something in common, the power of the people-animal bond. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more details about the book and the program. Thank you for attending today. We hope to see you again. Bye-bye. <laughs>